Last week we began the, the book of Malachi. You'll remember Malachi means messenger of the Lord, and that actually could refer to the man's name that wrote this, but it also could be the name given to the book itself, that the book itself is a messenger uh, from the Lord. It was written about a century after the Jews have come back from their Babylonian exile, which began almost two centuries prior to the writing of this book. But now a hundred years back in the land, we find that the Israelites are no more faithful to God than their forefathers have been. And, and so God raises up Malachi with several indictments against them, you know, depending on how you break it down, five, six, seven. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how many I've broken it down. You can count them at the end. But uh, these are indictments that God levels against his people after a hundred years of living back in the land where he was hopeful for them to follow him and be faithful. They have not been so. Now, I have couched these indictments because they're not written to us. They're not addressed to us. They, they're not in our time period. They really weren't. They, we have nothing to do with these things. I've turned them around, and, I've, and I'm addressing them to us in the positive. In other words, the indictment they got, what was it that they weren't doing positively that God indicts them on? And so I've switched them for us in the positive. And so let me just run through them real, uh, let me run through the ones from last week real quickly. The first one was value the love of God. You remember God accuses them of, of basically disparaging and not appreciating his love for them. And his love was demonstrated uh, in them and his choice of them. He said, I chose you over the Edomites and, and I have not chosen to restore the Edomites. In fact, I am not going to restore them. They will never come back. But you, I have loved, I've chosen you and I have restored you in the land. And so the positive for us today would be don't doubt the, the love of God. We've been talking this morning about suffering. When you're suffering, don't doubt the love of God. Value his love in your life. The second one was offer to God your very best. God, God longs for us to give him our very best. And in his criticism of them, they are bringing to the sacrificial altar sickly lambs, lambs that you wouldn't offer to your governor. Uh, they were just the, the worst of the lot rather than the best of the lot. And God had wanted them to bring the best of the lot. And, and so he, he indicts them for that. You know, our, our temptation, I think, is to do the same, to bring God our leftovers, to bring God or, or to, to let God have just the, the worst in our life rather than the best of our life, the best years of our life, the best time of our life, the best passion of our life, the best, the best everything of our life. We tend to want to bring him the leftovers and spend the best on ourselves. And that's his indictment against them. So, so my challenge to us in our day, being faithful to what God's insinuating, let's offer to the Lord our very best, even this morning. The third thing we said last week was be a clear representative of God. And this is almost a corollary to that previous point because God says to the priest, you should never have allowed this to happen. You were my emissaries on, on planet earth. You were the ones that spoke for me. You were supposed to teach for me. And you not only did not stop this, but you encouraged it. And I went on to tell you how we are the priest of God today as God's people. And so that same call to be his emissary, that same call to be his spokesperson, if you would, to represent him well, I mean, that's a, that's a call for us too. And so my challenge positively for us was offer, I mean, be a clear representative of God uh, to, to our culture, to our generation in which we live. Now, this brings us to new material. Here's the next one. Malachi says to them, value, protect, or says to us, excuse me, value, protect, and preserve your marriage. 
Now, the indictment that Malachi, Malachi levels against them is that they have dealt treacherously with their wives, and they are marrying women of foreign gods. We're going to pick up the new material in chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts." So God's next indictment is that they are sinning against God. They are profaning the covenant. They are profaning the very temple of God. And they're doing this because they're marrying women of foreign gods. That might sound really weird, but all that simply means is they're marrying women who worship other gods. These are not women who follow God. They're not women who love the God of Israel. These are other women. And God says, you're profaning my covenant. What does he mean by that? Well, the first covenant prohibited this. And so when they're doing this, they're profaning his covenant, and they're profaning the temple, which is where the presence of God is. You're profaning me, God says, and this is an abomination to me, what you're doing. But God's rebuke doesn't stop there, and he continues on. Now notice he doesn't wait really for them to say, well, let's continue reading. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? You know, in other words, God is not accepting your worship. You ask, why not? And he answers, verse 14, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But now, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking an offspring? What did that man do while he was seeking an godless, God was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now, here's what else they did. Not only did they take women who were worshiping foreign gods, they divorced their wives, their Jewish wives, their wives from their youth. And so, in other words, they're divorcing the women they're married years ago, and they're exchanging them for a newer foreign model. And God says, you can weep all you want at my altar, but I'm not going to receive your gifts. Furthermore, he says, any man who does this does not have a remnant of the Holy Spirit. God is not at work in any man who does this, he says. No one who is part of the faithful remnant of God does this thing. Now, here's where God makes two statements, and I want you to catch them in the text, okay, because I think they apply to us. The first one, he says, is, I seek a godly offspring. God gave us marriage for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons implied in this text is that God desires that we raise up for him a godly offspring. Now listen to what I'm going to say right now, because I, I'm not going to say that you ought to have as many children as you possibly can. I don't necessarily think that's true at all. However, I do want you to hear what God is saying, that he desires a godly offspring from your marriage, 
He desires for you to bring forth children into this world who are going to love him and follow him and serve him and be faithful to him and and children who will inherit the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And that is part of what God desires for us. And that's one of the reasons why he gave us marriage. Not necessarily, I don't even say it's the primary reason, but it's one of the main reasons for which we have marriage. It is that we might bring forth children that love him and follow him. And so that leads us to the second statement that God makes. He says, I hate divorce. Now I want to tell you three reasons why I think God hates divorce. God hates divorce because it often breaks the heart of one spouse. Often, you know, sometimes both spouses want a divorce, but sometimes both don't want a divorce. And divorce can break the heart of the spouse that doesn't want divorce. But let me be quick to say, a lot of times you're in that spot because the person who doesn't want to have divorce, hasn't really been listening to the other person who's been hurting, okay? And I understand that. But I think God hates divorce because it can break the heart of one of the spouses. Number two, it mars the image of God's unconditional love, his patience, and his willingness to forgive. I I think it, you know, when, when we divorce, especially those of us that know and follow Jesus, we are marring that image in our lives. But in this context, now listen carefully to what I'm going to say. In this context, God is saying, I hate divorce because the outcome of it is that it destroys you giving me godly offspring. It affects your children. It affects them so they don't necessarily follow me. Now listen carefully. Every one of us is, is uniquely responsible to God. I, I cannot blame my parents. I cannot blame my parents for anything they did or did not do when it comes to my relationship with God. I, I cannot blame my children when it comes to, to my relationship with God. I stand, every one of us stands before God alone. However, having said that, experiences affect us. And divorce, the implication here is divorce hurts our children. And divorce often leaves in its wake children who turn from God. Even children who hate God because of what happened in their family. That was true then and it's true today. So the application in a positive way for us, that's his indictment against them. You are divorcing the women that you married when they were young and you're exchanging them for younger women who are, they're not just, they're not even Jewish women. You are exchanging for women who don't even follow me, don't even love me at all. That's his indictment against them. Now, the the positive for us would be value, protect, and preserve your marriage. Take heed lest you you deal treacherously in your marriage. Now, we live in a culture where both men and women can bring about divorce. So be careful, men and women, that, that we... Don't do this, okay? Marriage is not easy. It's very hard. I've made no secret about how hard Ann and I have had it. It's been hard. And we're in a good spot right now. But, you know, here's here's the bottom line. Marriage is hard. I get it, everybody. And by the way, marriage is not hard because of a design flaw in marriage. Marriage is hard because the people entering into marriage are flawed, Right? It's not so much that marriage as a design is flawed. It's marriage because those of us entering into marriage are flawed. We are selfish, and, and, and a lot of times that selfishness can destroy our marriage. And, and so I really want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to not give up on your marriage. Now, some of you are divorced already. In fact, quite a few of us in this room are divorced already. All right? So here's the deal. We can't, I, don't, I don't think we can go back and change the past. Now, sometimes we may need to seek forgiveness for the past. And if that's you, you may need to seek forgiveness for the past. But we can't change the past. But I can change the future. The future lies unwritten. 
okay? And so we can make a difference in the future. So this is, is, I'm trying to say to all of us here this morning, listen, let's not let our marriages fail with, without giving it the best fight possible. Don't let the ship go down of your marriage without you all hands on deck trying to make the ship stay afloat as, far, as much as it depends on you. Everybody following me? Value your marriage. Protect your marriage. Preserve your marriage, okay? One of my prayers has been, and if you pray with me on Sunday morning, you've heard me pray this often, and I pray it in other contexts as well, and it's this. Lord, don't let another marriage in our church fail without all of us fighting together to save that marriage, to do our best to save that marriage, okay? God, and, and, and let me say this, God doesn't want our marriages just to endure. God wants our marriages to flourish. And I realize some of you are saying, well, my marriage can never flourish. If we make it to the end, that'll be great, but flourish, no way. Uh, but I, I, I do want to tell you, God's desire is for us to flourish, for our marriages to be something wholesome and positive and something that benefits us. And, and that's what he desires, Okay. It's going to take two unselfish people to make that happen, but that's what he desires. And, and don't forget the second part of this about the, you know, godly offspring. Your marriage is to be a fountain from which you present to God a godly offspring. And, and so, ladies, brothers and sisters, invest in your children. Make loving your children your priority as a married couple. You know, as a couple, as mom and dad, make loving your children or loving Jesus your priority so that your children will experience that and, and see that rather than being just told that by you, okay? You love Jesus first. People are going to pick up what they, what they see more than what they're taught. Everybody with me? All right. I'm not stepping on anybody's toes, am I? I'm really not trying to. I'm trying to really just encourage us to fight for our marriages. That's the point. My indictment, God says, against you Israelites is that you don't care about marriage and you've devalued it and you've cheapened it and you've divorced your wives and you're marrying younger women who don't even follow me. How dare you? And so the, 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 the counter-positive for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, is value marriage. Let me go on. The next indictment or the next positive statement for us is be confident, everybody, in the justice of God. Be confident in his justice. His indictment against them goes like this, against the Israelites of that day, is found in chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, how have we wearied him? God says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? All right, so... We say, you're wearing God with your words because you say, hey, the people who do evil, I mean, they're really benefiting in the sight. God delights in them, right? So where is this God of justice? Now I'm going to get you to drop down to chapter 3, verse 13, because it's, this is kind of in between these two things is God speaking his, his response to these indictments. But I think the, the second part that I'm going to read you is also part of that same indictment. But chapter 3, verse 13 says, Your words, God says, you wearied with me with your words. Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And you have said, it is vain to serve the Lord. And what profit is that, that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. 
And God says, you're wearying me with your words because you're saying such stupid things like that, that the, that the ungodly and the wicked, it, there's no value in loving God. There's no value in being God's man or God's woman. And, and those people who don't follow God, nothing's going to happen to them. They're just escaping God's justice. God says, I am weary of those words. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, in the book of Malachi, God responds. Got your Bibles? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, this one you're talking about, that you want justice from, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days." I'm telling you, I'm so encouraged by what I'm going to share with you. So Jesus quotes this passage, and he says, this refers to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger of chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible's very, the New Testament is very clear about that. John the Baptist was the one who was coming saying, prepare ye the way. And then he would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he points to his, his cousin Jesus. And then he baptizes him and says, hey, I shouldn't be baptizing you, but that all righteousness will be fulfilled. John baptizes Jesus and God proclaims him to be the one that in this text Malachi said would suffer suddenly come into his temple. And so Jesus comes into his temple. God comes into his temple. And Jesus is the Lord. He is the messenger of the covenant that they keep talking about. He's the promise of the first covenant. He's the one the first covenant points to. And Malachi says, or God says, but who can endure his coming? Because he will be a refiner of the sons of Levi. And he's going to refine them like gold and silver. And they will present their offerings to God in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing in the Lord's sight. Now there's some people that could say the sons of Levi there is referring to the Levitical priesthood. But I don't think so. I think the sons of Levi there is referring not to the Levitical priesthood, which, by the way, according to Hebrews 8, would pass away and be no more. Instead, I think it's referencing the, the new priesthood. I, I think it's God's way of saying, in the new priesthood, I'm going to refine the new priests, the new sons of Levi. I'm going to refine those priests, those sons and daughters of God by faith, and they will do everything that God says they're going to do. They're going to offer to God praises in righteousness. The offerings of God will be made in righteousness, and those things will all be pleasing to God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, I thought you were going to read this, Micah, but the next chapter after the one that Micah read, Peter says this, we are a chosen race. Now listen, a royal priesthood. We, the people of God, the sons of Abraham by faith, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I think Malachi is talking about us. 
I think Jesus, the one who's going to suddenly come into his temple and refine the sons of Levi, is talking about refining us, making us those acceptable sons and daughters of God by the work of Jesus. And what Jesus did will make it so that we can offer to God sacrifices and praises that are acceptable to him. I'm not talking about just the Jews. I'm not talking about the Jewish Levitical priesthood. I'm talking about Jews and Gentiles who are the sons of Abraham. Their offering is pleasing to God. And they will be, in in my estimation, in my understanding, they will be the Israel of God. They will be the Judah of God, the Levites of God. We will be the new Jerusalem of God that is pleasing to the Lord. So look at verse 5 in Malachi chapter 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And so then there's like a separation between verses 4 and 5. So Jesus is going to come into his temple. He's going to refine the sons of Levi. Then I will draw near to you in judgment. And I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppose the wage earners and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien those who turn aside the immigrant, those who turn aside, you know, the one who, the alien in our land, and do not, do not fear me, says, and they do not fear me, says the Lord. Now, now, here's what God is saying. He's saying, listen, you who say, I do not judge, I will judge. There is coming a day when I will judge swiftly. I will judge the sorcerers, the evil, the adulterers, the, those who lie, those who oppress people. I'm going to come and I'm going to judge them, he says. So make no mistake about it. Those of you who weary me with your words, saying that where is the God? Hey, where's God? He's not judging. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care. God's saying, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. Because there's going to come a day when I'm going to draw near to you for judgment. And it will be swift. And and you'll see who I will judge. And then in verse 6, verse 6 seems to, man, verse 6 is so wonderful. Verse 6 follows verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Here's what God is saying by verse 6. I do not change. I am going to judge your sin. I am going to be the God of justice that you are impugning with your words. But know this, the reason why you're not being consumed, the reason why I'm not destroying you is because I do not change. What does the Lord mean by that? He means because I am slow, slow to anger, full of mercy, Why? because I am the way I am, patient and filled with kindness, because I am the way I am, that's the only reason you're not being destroyed even right now, is what he's saying to those. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. The next chapter after the one I just read you. Or no, this is a different book. So here's what he says in his second letter. Peter writing, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then in verse 9, Peter makes this conclusion, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is the point of Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The reason uh, Malachi, or God, says to them, Do not be mistaken. The reason you're not consumed now is because of who I am and what I'm like. And the application for you and me would be, let's not impugn the justice of God. 
Don't ever compare yourself to some evil person or some person who's just been absolutely evil and, he's, and he or she is profiting and gaining and you're looking at them and you're struggling and you're suffering, but you're trying to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And you say, you know, you begin to say, well, God doesn't really care. Or God doesn't love me or God's not just. Man, whatever you do, God is saying, please don't weary me like that because it's not true. I am the God of justice and I will judge And the only reason it is the way it is now is because of God's kindness, His lovingness, His mercy, and He's slow to destroy. And yet God's not finished. There's one more indictment. And and the last indictment here is, I I, I struggled how to positively phrase this. So I'm going to phrase it like this. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to God's commands. Be faithful to God's desires in your life. All right, look at verse 7. From the days of your father... From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So, so God's indictment is them, is you've, you've turned away from me. Return to me. You've, you've gone away from me. And, and they say, well, how do we return to you? And then God gives them this illustration in, in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And they said, well, how? how? But you say, how are we robbing you? And then in verse, the end of verse 8, God says in this, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that, you may be, so that you, there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the, the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be delightful in the land, says the Lord of hosts. Now under the first covenant, the Jews were expected, required, commanded to give a tenth of everything they earned to the income support of the temple ministry. These post-exilic Jews were not doing that. They were not giving their tithe to the temple. And so in not doing so, God says, you are robbing me. You have turned away from me. You're not being faithful to me. And he tells them, be faithful to me. Test me in this. See if I don't, see if I don't bless you for your faithfulness. Test me. And then he says, it, right now what's happening is the devourer is consuming everything. The reason why you're not prospering is because of your unfaithfulness. So listen to me. Do what I say. Now, preachers use this passage all the time to tell you to tithe. If you don't tithe, you are robbing God. How many of you have heard that? You've probably all heard that, right? I want to say I don't think I've ever said it because I don't believe it's true. We are no longer under the old covenant. I'm not under the old covenant laws and neither are you. And so you are not commanded to tithe to the temple. Uh, We don't practice circumcision today. We don't practice animal sacrifices today. We don't do the laws of the old covenant anymore because they're not for us. They were for Israel under that covenant. We're under a different covenant. And, And so tithing is not commanded of us. What is commanded of us? Can I read you? Here's what the Bible says in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. You just listen. Now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something. Each of you is to set aside something and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will be made, need to be made when I come. Do you hear it there? You're to give as you are prospering. 
Chapter 2, I mean, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Did you hear how God told you to give there? All right, in response to a famine in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 29, God says, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did so, sending it with Barnabas and Saul. Again, did you hear it? In proportion to what you have. Jesus seems to call us to absolute generosity and sacrificial giving. Here's what Jesus said when he's walking the planet. Here's what he said. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And then he says this. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Jesus told the rich young man, he said, listen, go and give everything you have and come and follow me. Now, here's my point. The New Testament texts do not give us any kind of commanded amount to give to the ministry of God. In fact, it tells us to give proportionate to our means. It tells us to give as God has prospered us. It tells us to give what we purpose in our heart because God loves a cheerful giver. God, God does not ask of a New Testament giver to give under compulsion. I want to tell you though some other things that Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said. He said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I think we can reverse that. Where your heart is, there's where your treasure is going to be. Here's my point. I want to challenge you to give as God has blessed you. I want to challenge you to give, as Jesus said, good measure, pressed over, running. I want to challenge you to give sacrificially. I want to t- I've told you this many times, but some of you are new. I want to tell you what Ann and I purposed to do a long time ago. We, we, we purposed to begin our giving where the Old Testament required of the Old Testament says. We purposed we were going to start there. Not because we're commanded, but because that's where, the law com- that's where the law said for them to start. We said, hey, why would we start anything less than that? I mean, Jesus always took the law and he made it, made it not harder, but he made it deeper, if you would. You're not to commit adultery. I say you're not to... Lust in your heart. The law says don't murder. I say you're not to hate anybody. I mean, the law was, I mean, the, the grace of God always led us deeper, not, not shallower. Now, so for me, that was where Ann and I began. Like, obviously, if, if, if something happened, we just didn't have the money, we wouldn't have been able to give, but that would have been okay. Because God says give as you purpose in your heart. I want to challenge you this morning to generosity in that part, in that area. But, but this, this application this application really isn't about tithing even for them. It was about faithfulness to what God had asked of them. And so here's the positive for us. Be faithful, everyone. Be faithful to what God has asked of us. Be faithful to his commands in your life. Now, I'm almost finished with the book, and here's where it gets so exciting. Look at verse 16. The book's coming to an end. The indictments have ended. And, and now the book of Malachi is drawing to a conclusion, as is the whole writings of the Old Covenant. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son and serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Man, I love that. So God speaks 
And the people that have faith, the people who are followers of God, they hear the message of Malachi and they respond. They respond and it says they gave attention to what God was saying. And here's what it says. It says that God gave attention to them. And he wrote their names down. And, and Micah alludes to it. And Kathy reads it this morning in our prayer time. And, and you know, it's so wonderful. God says of those people who esteemed him, they are my own possession. And I will spare them as I spare, as a man spares his own son who serves him. And then verse 18 is, is a shot across the bow of everyone who denies the justice of God, who says it doesn't matter whether you serve God or not. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. There's coming a day when you will clearly know who belongs to God and who does not. You will clearly see those who serve God and those uh, who do not. And God says, they will be mine. They will be my possession. Now, that day that the Lord's talking about there in, in verse 18, he's talking about the day of final judgment. Or, excuse me, not verse 18, wherever that day where he talks about that day. 17? Yeah, so 17. That day, you know, he's talking about final judgment in that day. In that day, he's going to raise up the men and women who belong to him. He's going to resurrect us. And, and the others will be cast into the lake of fire, which the book of Revelation says is the second death. And those of us that belong to him, we'll be raised immortal, incorruptible, welcomed into the new age, to the new heavens and new earth. And that is so apropos uh, for, for, for what we're looking at with God's justice, okay? So let's continue on. God continues on in chapter 4, verse 1, still talking about that day. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be shafted. And the, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Now, man, here's what God says. On that day that's coming, there's going to come a big fire, all right? There's going to become a burning furnace. And every evildoer will be burned up like shaft. That's the leftover after the wheat, you know? that little flimsy stuff that just pulls up, just burns up really quick. He says that's how people are going to be. They will be no more. There will be, no, there'll be not a branch that remains. And then he says not even a root from which they can return. And the wicked as they're consumed and burned, he says, they will be destroyed and will be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. And I'm telling you, that reminds us of Isaiah 66 verse 22. In Isaiah 66, you just listen. I may, have it on the, I may have it on the screen. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I, will, I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And, and it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed me, and their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind." So in Isaiah, God says in the new heavens and in the new earth, all of mankind who enters into the new heaven and the new earth, they're going to love God and they're going to come and they're going to bow down before him and then they will look on the corpses of everyone who transgressed against God. 
They'll look on the corpses of all of God's enemies and what they will see is that they are fully consumed and the worm that eats those corpses will not die until they are all consumed and the fire will not be quenched until those bodies are all burned to the ground, to ashes, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now you may think this morning that I take pleasure in sharing it you know, with some kind of gusto or whatever. I don't want any of my sons to be ashes under my feet on that day. Do you? Do you want your children to be ashes under your feet? You want your friends to be ashes under your feet? Do you want, do you want anybody, anybody to be ashes under your feet, destroyed, destroyed by the judgment of God? I, I don't. I don't. So we shouldn't, this, 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 is, this picture of God's consuming fire should not be something that brings us joy. It should be something that motivates us to tell people about our Savior who's made a way so that you do not have to be, you do not have to go through God's fire judgment. We, we should, this should motivate us, this should compel us to, to go forth and, and tell everyone about this great Savior who loves them and who died for them. But I do get excited about the next part. Look at the next part. But as for us, the children of God, the faithful, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Jesus, the righteous one, will heal us. He'll restore us, give us immortal, glorified bodies and we will enter his new world with such joy and amazement. Our faith will be made sight and we'll enter into the new world skipping like a calf who just gets out of the stall. And he's just so excited to not be cooped up anymore. And, and, and there he is. That's us right there, entering into the new heavens and the new earth, just filled with joy, filled with amazement of all that God's got planned for us in the future. Now God ends his book of Malachi, his message from Malachi with verse 4 and 5. And six. Verse 4, he says, he's talking to those faithful Jews that have responded to Malachi's message. And the ones that he says, I remember you and I've written your name down and you are my possession. He says, now remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. You, you remember and you obey. And then in verse 5, he gives them this promise. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Jesus tells us something about this. He says that the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet coming was John the Baptist. That's what he said. He said, if you would, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this promise. And Jesus also is the one who has, in many, many, many cases, turned the father's hearts towards their children and the children's hearts towards their fathers. And families have been restored. But he says here that Elijah's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, there's two, two thoughts on what that means, right? One of them would be that the great and terrible day of the Lord, and we, we watched the day of the Lord video earlier, the great and terrible day of the Lord is, is still future. It's still the final day of the Lord that that video talked about, that final day when God rids, rids the world of all evil, okay? So it could be that, 
And, and if that is the case, there's, there's two thoughts. One is that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this promise, and he came 2,000 years ago. Others say that he was, John the Baptist was just sort of like a type of Elijah, but Elijah's still going to come again before that final uh, day of, uh, of judgment. But the, final, the, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord is the final day that's coming. A second view is, is one that I would probably hold to uh, but, but not with any great strength. But I'd probably, I'd probably see the great and terrible day there is talking about God's judgment that's coming against Israel if they don't repent. And so I would say that the great and terrible day of the Lord that, that Malachi is referring to was the day when God sent the Roman army against Israel and destroyed, decimated the Jewish people, decimated the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed the city in 70 AD. So... And the last line, if that were the case, the last line is God's hopeful desire so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God sent John the Baptist and Jesus hoping that Israel would repent and turn back so that he would not have to smite the land of Israel with a curse, the Roman Empire. But be that as it may, they did not repent. And so it could be one of those two things. But the point, the point I think that I want you to take away from the last part is, behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet for the coming day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And uh, this is the last word of the Old Testament, the last word of the Old Covenant. The very, for next 400 years, there's no prophet there's nobody speaking for God. There's no more books written. That's it. Quiet for 400 years. When, when God begins to speak again, guess who comes onto the scene? The last words as God closes out the Old Testament, behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet. The next opening words are John the Baptist is coming. And Jesus said, I want you to understand John the Baptist is the Elijah that we've been waiting for. All right, that ends the book of Malachi. Let me uh, do three things. Let me give you three applications. My time is, is up. So really three quick application reviews for us, okay? So of the new material this morning and God's indictments on them and the positives for us, value, protect, preserve your marriage. Fight for your marriages, everyone. Fight for your children's marriages. Can I say this to those of us that have married children? Um, help your children. Pray for your children. Pray for your young children now for their marriages. Invest in their marriages. If you are able, send them to things like Weekend to Remember. Invest in your children's marriages. Dads, listen, you know, you move from being man to, you, you move to being a patriarch in this, in this manhood thing, right? We, we, we become patriarchs in our family. And so, you know, we don't, I don't just quit on my kids now they're married. I don't give up my role as their father now that they're married, I need to be really investing in my children and helping them fight for their marriages and helping them prioritize this, this goal of raising children who love Jesus and follow Jesus. The second thing, be confident in the justice of God. Know, know that God will judge. Know it. Hold it in your heart that, that God is going to be true to his word. and his ju- You will see one day. When God, that God will judge. You will see it one day. All of us in this room will see it one day. Trust him. And, and I'd say to all of you, be ready for the judgment of God. All of you are going to stand before it. Every one of you. Are you ready? Are you ready? You say, well, Jimmy, how do I get ready? You get ready, but there's only one way to be ready to meet God. And that's to meet him now in the person of his son, Jesus. Have a relationship with him. Trust him. Faithfully follow him. Follow Jesus. If, you, if, you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not following Jesus and you, you just know about him or whatever, but you're not following him, 
Let me urge you to begin to follow Jesus. And the last thing, be faithful to God's commands. Let's be faithful to all the things that God has commanded us. And you know, I thought to myself this morning as I was practicing this message, I thought, well, that's so broad, Lord. How would I make it, how would I make it specific? And here's what I felt like God spoke to my heart. Every one of you knows where the specific is. You know where the specific is that you're not being faithful to God. You know the thing that God puts his finger on all the time. Be faithful to God. That thing, whatever it is. What did, what did he say to them? He said, turn back to me. Return to me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book. I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged by the way it ended. I'm so encouraged by the promise that we belong to you, Lord, that we are your possession, that we are your people, and that you have a day planned in which, Lord, we will go forth into your new creation, skipping like calves. Lord, that picture just lit me up this week, Lord, and I thank you for that. Father, may all of us be encouraged this morning with, the, with this truth and this reality that there waits for us in your kingdom things we can't even begin to imagine. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We, just, we look forward to the day when you reign and, and we will reign under you, with you, in your new heavens and new earth. Lord, may, may our focus and our heart be on loving you and being faithful to you and following you. Father, I pray for marriages in our church. When marriage is struggling, Lord, help us to humble ourselves and seek help. Lord, uh, I pray that you'd help us to help one another uh, persevere in marriage. Lord, we acknowledge how hard it is because of our selfishness, but we ask you to help us. Father, um, we, we just want to just say to you, we trust your judgment. We trust your decisions. We, we trust, Lord, that in the end, the, the justice and loving kindness of God will both be evident to all. And Father, and as we walk this life, Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, the thing that you've put your finger on this morning, may, may we turn from it and return to you. And those that are struggling, Lord, may they humble themselves and seek help. May they, may they ask of a brother or sister for them to pray for them or, to, or walk with them, Lord. But help us, help us to be faithful to you in whatever it is that we need to be faithful in. Father, hear our heart cries. Take our lives this morning. May we be all yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.